You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast series. Today, after a lengthy departure during COVID from our normal format, we're back with a more traditional look at a key employment law development. Today, we're going to look at the new gender pay gap regulations that were published over the June bank holiday weekend. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world in recent weeks. Some of you will have seen media coverage in recent days of a proposal to phase out the national minimum wage of €10.50 an hour and to replace it with a living wage of twelve seventeen. The idea is that this will start this year and be phased out over a four-year period ending in 2026. The figure will be based on 60% of the median industrial wage in any given year and the idea is that by 2026 the new living wage will have fully replaced the minimum wage. For those of you interested in the right to disconnect and the code of practice on the right to disconnect that was introduced in April of last year, you'd be interested to hear that the Tónishta, as a relevant minister, has commissioned the WRC to conduct a survey on the extent to which the code of practice is actually making any difference to the right to disconnect in the workplace. My experience, at least in talking to clients, or rather based on the limited number of queries we've had around this over the last year, is that it actually hasn't had anywhere near the impact on employers or work practices that perhaps were first expected. And I think that's probably why the Tornista has commissioned this report. He has made comments in recent days in the Dole that he's not against the idea of making some of the code of practice on a statutory basis to introduce it into law. So that will give you a sense of where he's coming from also. Finally, on the whistleblowing front, the Protected Disclosure Amendment Bill is still working its way through the Dáil process. It was due to be implemented by December last year in line with the European Whistleblowing Directive, but it's not the first time we've missed one of those deadlines. On the current timetable, we don't expect it to be signed into law before the summer recess, so we're probably looking at some time in the autumn. We understand that the main delay with the legislation is around amendments to limit the scope for employees to raise personal grievances as protected disclosures in light of the Supreme Court decision in Baranya last year. As always, we'll keep you updated on these developments. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. Let's turn now to the main focus for today's podcast, and that's the gender pay gap regulations that were published a number of weeks ago. First of all, to recap on the legislation, we have the Gender Pay Gap Information Act, which was signed into law in August of last year. The act itself is really just a framework piece of legislation in that it provided for regulations which in turn would spell out the detail around how employers calculate the pay gap, what will constitute ordinary pay, etc. And we've been waiting for these regulations for some time. In the run-up to the regulations being released, On the June bank holiday weekend, the department had issued two other publications in May. Firstly, a guidance note on how to calculate the gender pay gap metrics and a frequently asked question document. The regulations then came out themselves in recent weeks. And when you look at the regulations 
a lot of the detail in there is the content that was already produced in the two earlier publications. So actually, when you're reading the regulations, you nearly need to read all three documents together because they do work hand in hand. To go back over the main purpose of this legislation, the gender pay gap itself is the difference between the early rate of pay paid to male employees compared to female employees in any given organisation. And for many years, the gender pay gap has been seen amongst labour economists as the key indicator of pay parity in an organisation. To break this down into a little bit more detail, once this regime is in place, employers will be required to provide the following six pieces of information on an annual basis. Firstly, the mean and median early rate of pay between men and women in an organisation expressed as a percentage. Secondly, the mean and median gap in bonus pay between men and women, again as a percentage. Thirdly, the mean and median gap in early pay of part-time and temporary male employees compared to female employees as a percentage. Fourthly, the percentage of male and female employees who receive a bonus pay or benefit in kind in that organisation. Fifthly, the number of male and female employees in four equally divided quartiles, so you can get a sense of where the gender pay gap is most acute. And then finally, a statement from the employer on the reasons explaining its gender pay gap stats and the measures it is taking to address it. Now, the last one may seem a little bit harsh and putting the spotlight on the employer, but I actually think in practice this will be welcomed because a lot of this is about numbers and the numbers need to be put in context. And if you look at the recent article we released on the Uber pay gap and the stats around that, and it goes back to an earlier article we had done in 2019, that was a very illustrative example of how an employer can have a legacy and persistent gender pay gap, but it is all down to factors outside of the organization's control. And it'll be a welcome opportunity then for employers to put their numbers in context and explain why the numbers are what they are and what steps it can take internally to address this. Let's turn now to the detail in the regulations. And rather than bring you through them line by line, what I want to do is actually tease out some of the key concepts by way of a selection of random queries that we've been receiving from clients over the last number of months. I think that way you'll get a better sense of the regulations themselves, but you'll also get a sense of what issues clients and employers are struggling with and what parts of this they're trying to get their head around. So let's start at the start. And one of the most common queries we were receiving a number of months back was around what the key dates were. So first of all, we have what is referred to as the snapshot date. The regulations allow employers to pick any date in June 2022, and that will be its snapshot date. That's the date in respect of which it will be reporting its gender pay gap stats. Once you've identified your snapshot date, you then identify your reporting date which must be no later than six months after your snapshot date. To use the example given in the government FAQ, if you go with the 1st of June as your snapshot date, well then you must report by the 1st of December. Now, of course, there's nothing in this that prevents an employer disclosing this data early. And strategically, some employers may well choose to do so if their stats look good. The next question then that we received a lot of queries on was what employers do these new rules apply to? So for the first year of this regime, 2022, the rules will apply to all employers with 250 employees or more. And we understand that there are roughly 550 employers in Ireland that will be covered by this. That's a 
decent enough cohort of employers for the stats to give a real sense of the gender pay gap across different sectors and different organisations. As a general benchmark, the gender pay gap at a national level in Ireland is currently understood to be just under 14%. The timetable will be staggered here in that the 250 threshold will come down to 150 in 2024, and then by 2025, it will apply to all employers with 50 employers or more. And the idea, or the expectation rather, is that at that point, the regime will be up and running three years. So a lot of the smaller, less well-resourced employers will be able to get into the swing of this process pretty quickly. The next question that has been coming up quite a lot again in more recent weeks is what type of employees make up the 250 mark? Because of course, depending on which categories of employees are included or excluded, an employer may or may not have to comply with these regulations. So as a basic starting point, all permanent direct employees are counted towards the 250 mark, and that's no surprise. Likewise, all part-time employees, all fixed-term employees, and all specific purpose contract employees will go towards the 250. We've received a lot of questions in regard to agency employees, and the answer there is agency employees are excluded from the count towards 250 as long as the agency employee is paid directly by the agency rather than the end user, which would be the normal model. And then finally, contractors may or may not be included. This is because the particular definition of employees under the Employment Equality Act, which is the overarching legislation, can include contractors in certain circumstances. So when it comes to contractors, what I would suggest is that you consider this one carefully and take advice as necessary. What I want to do now is just run through two or three different questions that we've had in regard to the 250 employee headcount figure, which kind of teases out different angles on this. So one client had talked to us about a scenario where as of the month of June, they have over 250 employees, but they are looking at a redundancy program over the course of the summer, as a result of which by September, they will be well below 200 employees and whether they would then be covered, which is an interesting angle on it. But if you look at the regulations, the focus is all around the snapshot date. So in a way, it doesn't really matter what happens post the snapshot date. If on that date you have 250 employees, then you are covered, even if by the time it comes to reporting, you will have a lot less. Another query we've received in from a few different clients is in regard to group structures. So it's a common scenario here is, for example, an employer that has 300 employees across the entire group, but it doesn't have a single entity within the group that employs 250 employees. Now, this question is asked in the government FAQ, but it's not really answered in a very clear sense. But my sense of the regulations is that technically, as long as there is no entity with 250 employees or more, well, then you are outside of these regulations. But again, this is one where you kind of have to watch the market practice. What we are seeing is that a lot of employers, even if they could sidestep these regulations on this basis for their own brand or PR opportunity reasons are actually treating themselves as if they are covered. So they are sharing their data on a gender pay gap basis. If competitor organizations or a large number of employers start to do this, well, then it creates momentum and perhaps pressure on other employers to do likewise. So you do need to keep an eye on that situation as it develops. 
One other question that has come in from three different clients already at this point is in regard to the status of employees overseas and whether they count towards the 250 employee limit. One particular client had a scenario where I think they have about 270 employees in the entity, 240 of them are in Ireland and another 30 are in a number of different locations overseas. Unfortunately, the regulations don't really answer this issue head on. And in fact, one client told me they attended a government briefing where the official was asked this question and said that they would have to take it away. So it looks like it hasn't really been considered. To me, it seems like the most likely answer is that if the employee is an employee of the Irish entity, and even more likely if they are on the Irish entity payroll, that they would be considered and you would have to count towards the 250 number. If, on the other hand, the employees are employees of a foreign entity, well, then they're going to be covered by the gender pay gap rules in that local jurisdiction and wouldn't count towards the Irish 250 limit. We expect more guidance on this. And once we know more, we can share it with you. We've also had a number of different questions in regard to the status of employees on the different forms of leave. So to bring you through a mixed bag here, all the different forms of statutory family leave will be included. So an employee on maternity leave or carer's leave or paternity leave, etc., will count towards the 250 mark. Likewise, employees who are employed by the employer but not rostered on the snapshot date will be included. In terms of those then that will be excluded, the only concrete example I can give you from the government FAQ document is employees who are on a career break of 12 months or more. It may be that there'll be further clarity on the different types of leave over the coming months. So once you've established that you are covered by the rules, the next question then is, how do you report the information? Looking at the rules, there's no prescribed format really as to how an employer should make this information available beyond the bare requirement that the employer publish this detail on its website in a manner that is accessible to both employees and the public. The requirement that the information be made available to the public is really interesting. If you go back to the first podcast we did on this in 2019, we talked about the whole approach to this legislation being about the labour market being turned against employers. Insofar as if an employer is required to disclose its gender pay gap data and those stats are negative, it will have an impact on the employer's retention and recruitment. Here we see it now in the legislation that the employers are required to make this information publicly available. And this is exactly what it's intended to do. The rules also require employers to maintain the data on their website for up to three years. And this is very well thought out when you look at what it's intended to achieve. If we take an example where an employer runs its calculations this year and its gender pay gap is 15%, and then next year its gender pay gap has actually disimproved and it's 20%, that employer won't want a negative pattern to be identified on the website. So instinctively, it would look to remove last year's data, so at least this year's data is being viewed in isolation. By requiring employers to keep the data on the website for up to three years, it shines a spotlight on what way the pattern is going and whether or not the employer is actually improving or disimproving. Finally, in terms of what information you have to report and how you go about it, there is provision for companies that don't have a website to keep this data available in their head office. I think that's fairly academic, though, because any employer large enough to have 250 employees probably has had a website for the past 20 years. One question we've received from a couple of international clients is around whether you have to disclose this data to the labour authorities or to the minister. 
as you see in some other jurisdictions. We don't have to this year. The expectation, however, is that employers will have to share this data with the minister and the department next year and download it to some sort of publicly accessible website along the lines of the UK model. Many of you will be in organisations who have been working on your data pay gap preparation for the past number of years. And we've had a handful of clients who have actually disclosed their data over the last three years that we've been working with. One of them has asked whether these rules apply to them this year, where they have already done the exercise. And when you look at the rules, there's actually no real credit for proactivity. If you are one of those good citizens that has already disclosed your data this year, you still have to dust off the figures and make sure that your calculations are in line with the new regulations. Let's turn now to how the calculations themselves are worked out. And the core calculation at the centre of this regime is the hourly rate of pay and the comparison in the hourly rate of pay for men compared to women during the relevant pay period. The regulations provide that in order to identify the hourly rate of pay, you take a given employee's ordinary pay, add in any bonus paid during the relevant pay period, and then divide that number by the number of hours worked by the employee in the relevant pay period. So that's the core calculation. And there's a couple of concepts within that we just need to tease out further here. Firstly, we have ordinary pay. What exactly does that mean? Then we have a bonus. So what is and what is not a bonus? And then finally, we have employee hours. We also have to disclose data in regard to benefit and kind. So we need to understand what do the rules identify as a benefit and kind. And then finally, we have the relevant pay period. Let me start with the relevant pay period, because that is probably the easiest one to explain. The relevant pay period, in essence, is the 12-month period leading up to the snapshot date. Because the snapshot date is the date in respect of which you'll be explaining your gender pay gap stats based on the income earned by your workforce over the 12 months leading up to that point. So let's dig into these concepts a little bit further. Let's start with ordinary pay and what the regulations define as ordinary pay. So it expressly includes basic pay, allowances, piecework pay, shift premium and overtime. Pay is based on the gross figure, so it's not the net figure, and it includes all holiday pay, sick pay and family leave. So I don't think there's anything particularly controversial in any of that. It also excludes redundancy or termination payments. Then what is a bonus? So a bonus is defined as any cash payment, any vouchers, any shares, or share options or interest in shares that are overall based on productivity, performance, or commission. The fact that bonuses can be paid in shares does complicate this more than, for example, the concept of ordinary pay. And one question we've already received from a couple of different clients is, at what point do you consider a bonus to have been paid? If the bonus is paid by way of share options. And thankfully, the regulations do address this in some shape or form. They provide that the date upon which the bonus in shares is deemed to have been paid, and likewise the date that you use for the purpose of valuing it, will be the day that the share options are issued or vested, not the date that those options are granted. So to take a real-life example, if an employee is awarded €20,000 in share options in 2022, that will be disregarded for this year's calculations. And it won't feature until the year that the share options are actually issued or vested in the employee. In some cases, that could be a two or three year period. Turning then to benefit in kind, that is identified quite generally as any non-cash benefit of estimated monetary value. 
and it gives the examples of a company car, VHI or equivalent, stock options or a share purchase scheme. Now, those examples are pretty clear and nobody would argue with the fact that a company car is a benefit in kind. But the practical difficulty that I think employers will struggle with here, and we've already seen this, is where to draw the line. Because if you have an employer that makes a generous contribution towards a subsidised staff restaurant, well, then that is a benefit in kind per head. So does that have to be worked out and fed into these calculations as well? And you could have the same argument in regard to an employer that provides a number of staff events as to whether that's benefit in kind. This is hopefully something that will be addressed in further guidance from the department. Once you've got your head around the numbers and what the employee's ordinary pay is, you then have to divide that overall income by the number of hours that the employee works. And what I found certainly over the last number of years during COVID is that it has become increasingly difficult to actually pinpoint what an employee's hours are. And I suspect the majority of employers are even looser now in their discipline around recording workers' hours while they are in a hybrid model. So I was interested to see how the regulations would deal with this particular point. What they provide is that the hours to be used for the purpose of the calculation are the hours as provided for in the employee's contract or if those hours are not fixed or differ week to week, which depending on how you read this could be a vast majority of the workforce, then you pick a figure based on the number of hours worked by the employee during the last 12 weeks, divided by 12 and multiplied by 52.14 to get an average number of hours per week. Now, I've been working with a number of UK clients on their Irish preparation over the past couple of years, and we've been talking about this particular formula in the last couple of weeks since it came out. And their collective experience in the UK is that it is by no means an accurate formula. And in many cases, leads to figures that are not at all representative of the employee's average hours over the course of the week. And the example that often comes up is an employee working in finance coming up to the end of a quarter, or in particular, the end of the year. Over that period of weeks running up to that point, they will be working very, very long hours that are, that are not representative of the typical hours they do over the course of the year. So it does skew the number somewhat. But in fairness, it is difficult to find a one-size-fits-all approach that will work for every scenario. We could spend another hour talking about the mechanics of these different calculations and how they all work. But I think if I did, I'd run the risk of this being our last ever podcast, or at least the last one anybody would ever listen to. So we'll probably leave it at that for now, and we will tease out a lot more of this guidance as it comes up in practice. More and more questions are coming in on this, and we're seeing new angles and we are separately running a series of different articles on some of the points coming up. So we'll share more and more of these trends and observations with you as they come up. To conclude then, those of you who've been following this podcast series for a while will know we always like to ask, what does this mean for you as representatives of large employers in Ireland? We've been waiting for these regulations for quite some time. And many employers have already gone some distance in preparing their homework for this date. What will be really interesting to see, however, is for those employers who have already run the numbers, when they feed their data through the formula as now required in the regulations, whether that will change things a whole lot and if their gender pay gap will actually be worse than they thought it was. The real focus, I think, will, however, be on the reasons that employers give and the context around the numbers. And that goes back to the Uber article that we talked about before. Similarly, I think what will be an even more interesting point will be in 12 months time, 
when at that stage, employers have the first year's stats and then the second year's stats, and we can see whether or not things are improving or not for employers. I know the experience in the UK anecdotally was so many employers put a huge amount of effort into this in year one, and then it became less of a priority in year two, as a result of which their numbers did actually slip. But either way, we'll keep you updated as ever on the trends and developments that we're seeing. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.